We live in a day when it's tempting to think that human beings can know everything about ourselves and about the universe around us. So you might have a, a device on your wrist that constantly tells you your heart rate and maps your sleep patterns and how many steps you take each day. It seems like every day medical science comes up with some new way to, to scan or scope or image the human body to, to diagnose the things that are going on inside us that we, we can't see. There are also corporations that are vacuuming up all of our data and they have computers programmed to, to learn about us and analyze us and then they make predictions about us, right? They tell us what we want to buy before we even know we want to buy it. There was a story from many years back now about how Target could know that a woman was pregnant and start sending her ads about baby stuff before she even told her closest friends just by watching her patterns of shopping. So we've all had this experience. We think, man, I just talked about this thing with my spouse and now I'm getting an ad for it on my phone. How does it know? You know how, how does Google know I'm going to search before I've even finished typing it all in? How does Spotify know exactly what song I want to hear next? How does YouTube know the video to play to keep me on the site? We're always being watched and told who we are, in a sense. And every day we're learning about the world around us. Right? We have robotic submarines that have gone to the darkest depths of the ocean and taken video of things humans have never seen with their own eyes. And then we have the new James Webb, Webb Space Telescope that's out in outer space and it is taking images of, of light waves that we can't see and then turning those into pictures that we can see. And then if we do have a question, something we don't know, we just pull out the phone in our pocket, right? And we can access all the knowledge that human beings have in just a few seconds. It's tempting to think that we live in an age of universal knowledge. But of course, as, as amazing as it is to, to describe those things, you don't have to live very long in this world to realize the illusion of these things too, right? As often as not, a new discovery is made in science that just opens up more questions than we had before. I just learned this week about some science on the songs of blue whales. And these are songs that are 180 decibels. They can travel 500 miles underwater. And they're at a, such a low frequency, though, that human ears cannot hear them. And scientists have discovered that the songs of blue whales have been getting lower and lower and lower for the past 40 years. And nobody knows why. They don't know if it's acidity in the oceans or populations of, of blue whales. No data maps on to this decrease. And so it's just a mystery of science that someone's going to get another grant for studying for the next 10 or 15 or 20 years until they figure it out. The more we find out, the more we find out that we don't know. We also have all had the experience or know someone who has of going to the doctor and, and having all the tests and coming back with no diagnosis. Or as in some cases, a misdiagnosis. Right? They scanned you and they were wrong about what they saw. At that point, the, the limits of our knowledge are all too real, aren't they? What about those algorithms that are always tracking you? Right, they know about you, but they don't know you. And they certainly don't have your good in mind, right? They want you to buy something. Or, or the social media algorithms, they just want to keep you on the site, or they want to make you mad to keep you on the site. They're not intended to do us any good. And sometimes they get us wrong, don't they? Lately, I've noticed in the podcast I listen to, the ads I'm being served are Spanish-language ads for Fred Haas Toyota World. That's the only words I can understand in the ad, is some Spanish and Fred Haas Toyota World. Like, I don't speak Spanish. I'm not in the market to buy a car that I know of. The algorithm maybe knows something I don't know, right? So for all the knowledge we possess in the modern world, we still know very little. For all the ways that we can be known and connected to other people through our technology, we often feel lonely, isolated, and unknown. And as Pastor John prayed, we're ultimately unknown even to ourselves. Well, Psalm 139 is a psalm that's all about being known 
and knowing your place in the world. It's a prayer of David in which he confesses great, deep theological truths about God, and yet he does this in the most personal way, in deeply personal ways. So this morning we're going to walk through this psalm. We're going to look at three simple statements that David makes to God. He addresses these things to God. And then we'll look at how these theological realities drive David to make two impassioned requests of God. So you can turn to Psalm 139 on pages 521 and 522 of the Bibles provided, if you're using one of those. And we'll see these three statements in the passage. First, we see David saying, Lord, you know me. Second, he says, Lord, you are with me. And third, Lord, you made me. Lord, you know me. Lord, you are with me. And Lord, you made me. Those are the statements we'll walk through this morning. So look at this first one. Let's read the first six verses of Psalm 139. Listen to God's word. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, you behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in before, behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. So as David opens his prayer, reflecting on God and his relationship with God, he thinks of himself as known by God. O Lord, you know me and search me. That's what this first stanza is all about. David pictures God almost like we might picture an investigator who knows everything about him. Maybe you've seen those spy movies where the CIA, they secretly drag somebody in and then they just lay out the dossier and they flip through the pages and say, we know you talked to that guy. We know you had breakfast with that guy the other day. We know it's in your trash. We know it's in your mail. They know everything. The Lord knows everything about him. The Lord knows when David goes and when he stops. He knows everything. But that image of the investigator doesn't really get the picture because God didn't have to do any work. He didn't have to dig any dirt. He didn't have to stake out the house. He just knows. He knows David. And David just piles on image after image about God as knower, that God is the, the wise man who discerns David's thoughts. He sees right through his poker face. God is the intimate friend acquainted with David's ways. And the knowledge of God extends out into the future, right? It says that God knows what David will say before David says it. While the, the thoughts are still forming in his head, God knows. God's knowledge includes everything. In verse 5, David uses the picture of being surrounded to describe God's knowledge of him. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. This knowledge is all-encompassing. It's inescapable. This image is a, a, a positive image, an image of safety and protection. So the Lord uses his complete knowledge of David to protect David, to keep him safe, to guard him. The Lord's saving hand is on David. And this meditation on the complete knowledge of God leads David to praise the Lord in verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This raises an interesting question, one that we'll keep thinking about throughout the message. Is knowing that God knows everything about you a cause for praise or alarm? Clearly in David's case, he, he was a cause for praise for him. But it might seem terrifying to us, right, to know that God knows everything. Yes, that thing that I would never tell anyone else, God knows it. Does knowing that God know every, knows everything about you, does it want to make you praise him? Or does it 
make you want to hide from him. Notice that David's praise here is also a confession of his own limitations. He says the knowledge that God possesses is too high for him. He can't attain it. We recognize in our own culture there's a deep-rooted pride in the way we claim to know everything, right? And we're often blinded by thinking we know more than we do, thinking that there's more certainty out there than there really is. But confessing the truth about God's knowledge the way David does, it leads us to the wiser path. If we follow David's lead and confess that the Lord knows us, we're in a better place to deal with our own sin and our own pride. Did you ever fool yourself into believing that your sin is secret and known only to you? You nurture a grudge or you have these condescending thoughts about another person and you think, well, it's okay. They don't know. I'm not, I'm not acting on those things. It's just, just me and my own heart. I'm keeping it together. Or you give in to bitterness or anxiety. Again, thinking it's all contained. But the Lord knows every thought. He searches the heart. It's exposed before him. Your secret thoughts are not secret. So confessing that the Lord knows us the way that David is, to say, you know me, Lord, is a way to fight against this self-deception. It's a way to say, you know all this, Father. There are no secrets between us. David's confession can also help us by, by helping us reevaluate what we think we know. And we see how far God is above us, how much he knows, we realize how little we know. Our knowledge is, is minute by comparison, microscopic, right? We have to build computers especially for trying to evaluate all the knowledge that we're trying to gather, right? The human mind can't know it. So sometimes... This pride of thinking we know more shows up in the way we talk about current events or science. We talk about those things with a kind of certainty that really only belongs to God. The only person who can properly talk with certainty about all these things is is God himself. Why is it that we act so certain about our thoughts and opinions? Partly because of a failure to confess this truth, to gaze at God's great knowledge and to say, it is so high, I can't attain it. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're really glad that you're here. But I wonder if you've ever thought about knowledge like this. Have you ever thought about what you can know? Are you so certain about what you do know? Perhaps you have core beliefs about science or philosophy, you think these beliefs kind of weigh against what the scriptures say about God and Christ? Are you so certain of those things? And have you been honest with yourself about what you can know? Have you been honest with yourself about what you can know about yourself and the world around you? God would call you to look upon him and what he knows and ask yourself, what do I know? One of the most remarkable things we find in the scriptures is that Jesus is revealed as both man and God. And according to his humanity, he tells us in Mark 13, 32, that there are things he doesn't know. He doesn't know the day or the hour of the coming judgment that he was prophesying. So even the man Jesus expressed humility about what he knew. Are you that humble? Of course, Jesus is also God. And so as God, we hear him say, we hear said about him that he, did, he, he, did, he knew what was in man's heart. And so he didn't entrust himself to them in John 2, 23 and 24. After his resurrection, Peter confesses, Lord, you know everything. As Jesus is asking him, do you love me? So Jesus is both the man who is known by God, like David, and the man who the God-man who knows all things. Christ knows everything. And when he went to the cross, 
He knew how sinful we would be. And yet he still went. He went to that cross, perfectly trusting in his Father's wisdom to pay the price our sin deserves. And so it's only by faith in Christ that we can join David in praising God for his wonderful knowledge. Only by faith in Christ that we can be perfectly known and loved children of God. It's only by faith in Christ that the the reality that God knows us completely isn't terrifying. By faith in Christ, God's knowledge of us becomes good news. Because in Christ we meet the God who knows us and who knows our sin and yet forgives us through Christ's work. In Christ, God can know us and not hold what he knows against us. So David's prayer here invites us to confess with him, Lord, you know me. Now let's turn and look at David's second statement to God. He confesses, Lord, you are with me in verses 7 through 12. So let's read beginning in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take to the wings of the morning and dwell on the othermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. The first verse of the stanza takes a bit of a surprising turn, right? Given all that we've said about David's praise, verse 7 sounds like David's looking for a way out, right? A way of escape from God's presence. It's hard to see how verses 6 and 7 fit together, going from praise to this way of escape. But the sentiment of verse 7 by itself makes perfect sense to us, right? The Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says, the impulse to flee from God's face is as old as the fall. Right? We all understand this. We begin to regard the, the good place, the place of safety as a prison that we want to get away from. The nature of sin is to want to run from the good God, to hide ourselves. It's hard to read this passage without thinking of the prophet Jonah, right? He was commanded to go to Nineveh and tried to flee to Tarshish. He fled to the sea, and the Lord arrested him on the sea. He's thrown into the sea, and the Lord found him there and answered his prayer. We see that our attempts to run from God are totally useless. Everywhere we could think of going, God is there. That's the theme of this stanza. God is everywhere. He's in the heavens above, and he's even in Sheol, which is the way the Old Testament speaks of the the realm of death. Those who are dead are in Sheol. So distance and darkness are nothing to God. He's not limited by space like we are. Darkness hides nothing from him. And so there's no place we can go from his presence. Despite the way verse 7 begins with it appearing a, David seeking a way of escape, this stanza is, is full of confessions of God's goodness and hope. So David confesses that even in the depths of the sea, he trusts that God will lead him there and that God's hand is still on him there. That hand that hemmed him in the first stanza is still with him in the second. And then verses 11 and 12 express confidence that In the darkest night of the soul, David will not be crushed. Commentators note that the word that's translated covers in the ESV is is the same word that's translated crushed when, when God prophesies to Satan that he shall be crushed by the woman's seed. So it says something more like, surely the darkness will crush me. This is an exasperated prayer. I'm, I'm about to be crushed, Lord, by the darkness. And yet... It's also a prayer of faith. Even when it appears I'm being crushed, you're with me there. Your light is there in the darkness. This reminds us of 
David's word in Psalm 23 that we probably all know, right? In the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with us as a good shepherd, leading us out of the darkness. These things are only true, ultimately, because of what Christ has done. Right? The Lord can be with us in Sheol because Jesus went to Sheol for our sake. Peter proclaims this in his sermon at Pentecost. So Peter quotes from Psalm 16, where David prayed, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. David says that those words that David prayed, they were, they were a prophecy about Christ. Christ is the one who is ultimately not abandoned to Sheol. Christ is the one who died and yet did not see corruption. David, Peter goes on to say that because of Jesus' righteousness, he died, but death could not hold him because he was perfect. And so he rose victoriously over the grave. So because of Jesus' work on the cross, Christians don't fear when we go to Sheol. For us, death has become a paradise. Right? Isn't that what the thief on the cross hears? Today you will be with me in paradise. Death is a paradise for us because in death we go to be with the Lord. We go to Sheol knowing Jesus will meet us there. We're not alone in the place of death. For those in Christ, we know that God is with us in everything we experience. Right? We read that earlier in Romans 8. The Spirit of God knows our hearts and intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And the God who knows us perfectly, he knows the mind of the Spirit. He, he hears those prayers and works all things together for our good. And nothing can separate us from his love. He is with us. When we find ourselves overwhelmed by trouble, the darkness is closing in, we know we have the good shepherd. He is with us and he leads us. Who is Christ? He is the light of the world, right? In the darkness, he's there. And this isn't kind of a, a contentless, amorphous kind of presence or feeling. It's not a mystical experience David is writing about. The Lord illuminates our path with the truth of the gospel. The Lord leads us by his word. So if you're in darkness and you want to know and enjoy the presence and the leadership of the Lord, you need to turn to his word and turn to the gospel. When we're in our dark and difficult place, we don't typically do this, right? This is not our, our natural instinct, right? We might turn to many other things, but we don't often turn to the Word of God. We may in those times not even feel like going to church and being around other people. But the place we most need to be in those dark times is in the Word and among God's people. That's what we most need when, when we're suffering, is to hear God's word proclaimed to us from people who love us. We need the words of the gospel and the fellowship of the saints more than ever when it feels like we're being crushed by the darkness, when it feels like we're headed to Sheol. We need the gospel truths. So, so psalms like this one can be the medicine God provides for your soul or, or passages like Romans chapter 8 that remind you that the Spirit intercedes for you and because of what Jesus has endured and where, what he has conquered, nothing can separate you from God's love. The word of God and the gospel are the light and the leadership we need. And so don't seek to hide from God's light. Turn to the good shepherd who himself suffered death for your sake. Hear his word and find hope. Know through the promises of his word that he's with you. He's with you in the darkest of moments. He is with you through death. Of course, these promises of the Lord's blessed presence are not for everyone. Right? If you're not trusting in Christ, 
then this truth that David confesses, that God is everywhere, should push some questions to the front of your mind. I mean, do you think right now that you're hiding from God? Are you, are, is there something you're trying to hide? You know, you may successfully hide it from your parents, you know, from your spouse, from people who know you well. You can fool them for a time, but there's no hiding and fooling God. And what do you imagine will happen to you when you go to the place of death? You know, our, our society, our culture tells us lots of stories that we just cease to exist or some religions that we're remade and reincarnated. The world may tell you any number of false stories about death. But the scriptures say when you die, you will meet God. You will find God there. Will you find him as your savior? Hemming you in, protecting you. Or will you find him as your judge? David's clear that God is everywhere and you will meet him. And so will the place of death be paradise or hell for you? We started off talking about our technology. With our, our phones, we can turn off the GPS tracker, right? We can browse the web only in incognito mode. You can start paying cash for everything. You can even get away with wearing a face mask into your bank now, right? The security cameras won't even know it's you. There's no incognito mode with the Lord. There's no hiding from him. There's no running from him. Learn Jonah's lesson. Wherever you run, God will find you. So don't keep running. Turn from your sin. And turn to the one who endured death for sinners. And trust in Christ's work. Confess with joy. With faith in David's Lord, Lord, you are with me. That's the second thing David teaches us to confess. The next confession David makes is in verses 13 through 18. He says, Lord, you made me. Let's read those verses together. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand I awake, and I am still with you. These three confessions of David, these three statements, I think they build on one another. So first, we see the God who knows all, and then we see that the God who knows all is everywhere. His knowledge includes every person in every dark corner of the universe. And now we see that the all-knowing God and the all-present God is at work everywhere. And in this stanza, David uses this extended meditation on the, the formation of life in the womb as a way to reflect on a, on a place that God is and that God is working that we have no access to. Right? Even with our great technology and surgeries performed in utero and imaging, we still have no access to this in a, in a grand scheme of things. It's a, it's a hidden place a place unknown to us, but it's not hidden and unknown to God. God is there, and he is doing his wonderful works. It is he who made us. David, again, piles on the images here of God as a, a master weaver, or a craftsman, and also a master writer. God intricately weaves the body together. In verse 16, we see that God sees even our unformed substance. And some translations will simply use the word embryo there. So before there was anything of us to be seen, God saw. Even before we had drawn a breath, it says God was writing out the days of our lives in his book. 
He is the maker and the author of life. People in the Judeo-Christian ethical tradition have rightly understood these verses as, as telling us about the sanctity of human life, even life in the womb. So we confess that the, the human embryo and the human fetus are human beings made in the image of God. And so the protections and rights that a, a human enjoys after they're born should be enjoyed by those before they're born. This year, we have much to be thankful for, right? As our Supreme Court has rejected the idea that the U.S. Constitution provides a right to kill babies in the womb. And we Texans have a lot to be thankful for because we live in a state that's functionally banned abortion. And yet, even as we're thankful for those things, we, we recognize that this is not true across our country or across the world. We grieve that in this last round of elections when abortion was on the ballot so that citizens like you and me could vote on it, but citizens voted not to allow abortion restrictions. So we, we see we live in a culture where people have chosen their rights to convenience over protecting the rights to life of those in the womb. We live in a culture where we've recognized and want to codify our own independence and authority instead of submitting ourselves to God's authority. We honor ourselves and reject him. Notice that David's meditation on God's work in the womb leads him to praise multiple times in these few verses. In verse 14, he breaks out, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That word wonderfully is, is really important because it, re, it refers to God's wonderful works, God's wonderful, miraculous works. The same, these same language is used to describe God's miraculous saving works in the Exodus. So when David looks at himself, he sees a miracle of God working. He sees countless wonders going on. But we also should see there's something more here. In, in the scriptures, when we see the scriptures in other places speak of God forming people, the scriptures speak that way to describe a purpose God had in forming that person. For example, we have a, a framed pink plaque in, our, uh, in my office now. It used to be Anna's room, and it's still there. And it says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart. So that's a quote from Jeremiah 1.5. But it's only a part of Jeremiah 1.5. It doesn't include the last line, which says, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Right? There's not a huge market for baby gifts about future prophets, right? So they didn't include that. But notice it says, God is saying to Jeremiah, I formed you in the womb. I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So this formation language, this I knew you beforehand language, is language that speaks to Jeremiah's specific calling and purpose. I want you to see that Psalm 139 is doing something similar. Psalm 139 is not just simply saying God made all humans. It is saying that. It's saying God made human beings for a purpose. And that's what David's praise shows us in this stanza. David's praise is not just kind of coincidentally here. It's not just sort of an exclamation. David's praise is the purpose for which he was formed. God formed him. God made him. God knit him together. God wrote his days down so that David would praise him. So that David would say in verse 17, How precious are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they were more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. So the fact that David exists, he says, contains these innumerable testimonies to the greatness of God. And David was made to realize that. David was formed and made and known by God in order to worship God. 
and all people were made and formed and known by God in order that we should worship him. Each day is a, is a testimony to the fact that God graciously sustained us through another night. He's woken us up and given us life. Why? So that we could praise the Lord. So that we could worship him as we ought. We were made for worship. And so we should ask, are we praising him? Are we worshiping God as he deserves, as our maker, as our knower, as the God who is everywhere? Are we living our lives oriented towards him? Or are we living for ourselves? Are we living essentially like all those voters who rejected restrictions on abortion? What I mean is, are we, are we worshiping at the altar of our own choices instead of worshiping the God who formed us. When we think about a person being formed in the womb for a specific purpose, our thoughts should turn to Christ, especially here at the Christmas season. If you've read any of the birth narratives this Christmas season, you, you know how Mary's womb is, is highly mentioned, right? It's in, on display because that's the arena in which God comes and he creates this flesh for Christ to indwell. Right? Mary was overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in her womb contained the Lord. And Christ was formed there, knit together for a specific purpose. For the purpose of bringing glory to God for his wondrous works. Jesus was formed for the purpose of glorifying God through his death for sinners. He's born to die. And born that men no more may die, as we sing in Christmas carols. Jesus was formed to die on the cross for sinners. And so it's only through faith in Christ that those who naturally want to worship themselves can be saved. It's only through the revelation of Christ, who was formed to be the Savior, that we can be forgiven of our self-worship. And it's only through faith in Christ that we can offer God the praise that he deserves. If we want to speak the praises of this ver these verses, we need faith in Christ. We need to come to saving faith in him. And so to have saving faith, you first have to come to that place where you, you understand the ways you've worshipped yourself. Saving faith brings you to the place where you understand that you've been acting like you're self-created. And therefore get to rule yourself. Coming to Christ requires you to see the ways you've rejected God as your author and maker. This psalm would have us all look at ourselves and say, Can I explain why I exist? Can I count all the numerable things that have brought me to life and kept me alive for another day? Can I explain what I'm for? Only... God in Christ can explain it. So saving faith requires you to see that Jesus died in your place. He died to pay the price that our self-worship deserves. It requires us to confess we are sinful people. We do things like prioritize our convenience over the lives of our weakest neighbors. And to see that on the cross, Jesus took our place he took the judgment we deserved. And the gospel calls us to confess, Lord, I did not form myself. I repent of trying to rule myself. Lord, forgive me for Christ's sake for all the ways that I've rejected you as my maker and God. And so with David, we should each confess, Lord, you made me. It's when we confess that that we are finally starting to begin to understand why God made us. He made us to praise him and to worship him in Christ Jesus. To marvel at his wonderful, innumerable works to us in Christ. And so in Christ we confess, Lord, you made me. Now what comes next may at first seem like a bit of a surprise. 
We've been in this realm of lofty theology, these deeply personal prayers, these wonderful reflections on God's intimate love for us in the womb. And then David takes us to curse the wicked. So let's start reading in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So why this shift in this psalm? Why why leave the realm of lofty theology for, for what sounds vindictive? I think it does make sense if we consider where we've been. We've been on this rising crescendo of theology of praise. Right? We've reflected on God, the all-knowing one, God, the all-present one, God, the maker. And so it does make sense as we reflect on that God, that those who oppose such a God should be judged. If God is the intricate weaver of life in the womb and the author of the days of men, then what should come of those men of blood who violently end the days of the innocent? They should be struck down, right? So David has been praising God's wonderful name, right? Reflecting on all of these attributes of God and marveling at his works. And this is its logical corollary. If God's name is worthy of all praise, if human beings were made to praise him, then those who take God's name in vain should be judged. This is the righteous end of those who oppose the glorious maker, God. So David appeals to God, the God who searches him, who's already searched him. You know my perfect hatred of the wicked. He's saying to the God who knows the heart, Surely, Lord, you know the way I've righteously hated those who hate you. He wants it on the record that he is not in league with such men. Perhaps we might say David knows such men exist and they're going to be even in his court, right? Some of them will be his own children, such men of blood. Some of them will be his own generals like Abner. And he wants wants everyone to know, I oppose those who are men of blood, those violent men who take your name in vain. If he must live among them, he wants it to make clear that he does not approve of them. And so that's why we see this harsh language. And we should see that even for us, there's something right and good about David's desire here. We should hate what God hates. So listen to what Paul says to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 6 13 and 14. This is a passage we ordinarily quote in reference to marriage. He starts off talking about do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But listen to all the other things he goes on to say. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So recognizing who God is and how he's entered into relationship with us through Christ should form us into people who hate what God hates. It should form us into people who fight sin, who watch over our lives for, for any creeping idolatry, right? That we, we watch over ourselves and each other in the church to make sure that we're not making any handshakes with idols. Like Paul frequently calls those he's writing to not to walk in darkness because they've, they've been freed from such ways. Not to walk in the old passions. And so in some ways, that's what David is, is doing for us. He's calling us Turn away from men of blood. Don't give in to their violent ways. And we have to confess that 
that violent ways have a certain appeal to them, right? We, none of us probably think of ourselves as those who want to shed others' blood. But, but vi- the violent people have some power to them, right? And they get quick results. You can, you can marshal a kind of worldly power to get quick results. And that may be tempting to God's people, right? Especially if we feel ourselves to be embattled or oppressed. Maybe this is a quick way out. But David's saying no. Have no, have no relationship with those men of blood. Call them out. Call anti-God ways out as anti-God. The God, God is the creator of life. So have nothing to do with those who would unjustly and violently end life. God is the glorious God. And so have nothing to do with those who would dishonor God's name. Now that makes a certain sense in David's Old Testament context, right? He was the king of Israel. He was called to, to shepherd the people of Israel and work for a kind of purity in that nation. We have a, a more complicated setting, don't we, in the church? We're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to seek to love our enemies. So we'll have to apply this, this need for purity in wise ways. But we shouldn't dismiss what David says here as somehow vindictive. David is showing us what a love for the Lord should lead to, a hatred for sin. And I think that David's hatred for sin here and his meditation on the purity of God makes sense of why these four verses about cursing the wicked are slammed up against the last two verses of a prayer for searching the heart. Because again, if you're meditating on the purity of God, And if you're keenly aware that there is impurity out there in the world, the humble man must see there is also impurity still living in my heart. And that's where David goes to end this psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. David understands he was made to praise the Lord. He was made to do so purely, right? To have a single-minded devotion to the Lord. To honor him in all things. To hallow God's name. And clearly he knows that he still needs to grow in this way. And so he prays this prayer, and it's really a series, a rapid-fire collection of requests. Search me, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there be any grievous way in me. David is inviting the all-knowing God, the God who is everywhere, the God who knit him together, flay me open, search out the evil within me. Now, this is, this is not a prayer that, that we can easily pray or we can pray it all outside of Christ, right? As we talked about, if, if God knows your sin and if you, if you are unrepentant in your sin, then you are right to fear God's judgment for your sin. But it's clear throughout the psalm, David understands himself to be in a a covenant relationship with God, to have God's saving hand upon him. He knows the God who leads him out of the dark place. He knows the God who's there in Sheol with him. And so he prays this prayer. And David points us to a prayer that we should be able to pray as Christians. Perhaps we can pray it in a way that even David couldn't because we know Christ more clearly than David did. See, we can pray this prayer because we are in Christ. I think of Jesus as the first prayer of this prayer. Think of Jesus as the one who was searched and found perfectly righteous. Jesus did never did anything sinful. And we have his righteousness by faith in him. We are justified in God's eyes. And that's why we can stand before God and pray this. Because there's no condemnation now for us in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus has taken our condemnation. There's no worry about being exposed, right? 
We've already been exposed and covered by Christ's righteousness. No fear of death and judgment because our sins have been judged on the cross. So brothers and sisters, if we want to live the Christian life, we first must realize what we are here for. We are here as those formed by God to praise him. And then we realize how far short we fall of doing that. And so this is our prayer every day. We want to be a church of people who are always praying, Father, search me, know me, try me. Take your laser-like gaze and peer into my heart. Why? So that I can walk in the way everlasting. Because I believe that life with you through Jesus Christ is better than my sin. That being ruled by you and praising you is better than ruling and worshiping myself. That's where this psalm leaves us. It leaves us with the joy of being exposed to God because that exposure shows us our great Savior. And so we sit back and we, we just number the ways God has loved us. We look at these innumerable blessings, greater than the sands of the seashore. I just go through your systematic theology, your adoption, your sanctification, your glorification, Christ's ascension, Christ, Christ's love for you. All these things are reasons to wake up each day and know the Lord is with me. He formed me to praise him. Search me, O God, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us pray this prayer. Help us to pray this whole psalm to confess with David that you know us, that you are with us, that you made us. Help us to know that you made us to worship you. Help us to more faithfully transmit this to our, our children and our neighbors. Help us to to show the beauty of your plan for humanity, that you created us to enjoy fellowship with you. And help us to see that despite our rebellion, you have restored a way for us to, make, to have that fellowship through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you'll help us, help each of us every day to commune with you around the gospel. I pray that Christ our Savior Baptist Church would be a church full of people who pray these words, who lay ourselves open before you because we cherish the way of Jesus. We cherish being saved by Christ. We cherish the privilege of fellowshipping with you and praising you and living to glorify you. We ask for this in Christ's name. Amen.